Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Speed is everything in Ruler edition 103. The whole magazine is devoted to its pursuit. Orla Shenwi got together with four people who've devoted their lives to going faster, and we hear them on this podcast. We also take the slower route with Frederica Eck, who rode from her tiny hometown in the north of Sweden all round the world. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by LACA, bicycle insurance powered by the community. For Ruler's Speed Edition, which is on its way to subscribers now, Orla Shenwi spoke to four people who've spent their lives pushing themselves to the limits to find out what speed means to them. All of them are keen cyclists. Formula One driver Valtteri Bottas, MotoGP veteran Cal Crutchlow, Jamie Chadwick, who won the first all-female W Series and test drives F1 cars for Williams, and the Manx missile himself. Mark Cavendish. Especially for like Ruler magazine, like what I'm going to say is going to sound quite unromantic, you know, it's like, it's just a process really. You don't really have a concept of how fast you're going. You're just trying to make them decisions as quick as possible, you know, and the speed's kind of, kind of irrelevant. It's just, you got to make it a little bit quicker when you go faster. But for instance, like you look at Cal, when he goes on, when he's going downhill on a bike, he's loving life, you know, like he, he he's nuts. You can't follow him. You're saying I don't like going uphill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, then go if I like going on the motorbike. Say I went on the back of Rani Romola on the on the two seat Ducati once, and for me, it was the best experience of my life. You know, you know, you know that feeling in your tummy when I don't know if you you stand up at the edge of like a tall building and you, you feel know, like you, you're going to jump. Yeah, yeah on yeah. that, you know when you're on the limit of every anything, you know. But it's especially not if you're doing it. If someone else is doing it, you're out of control. You have that feeling, like that's the best <laughs> feeling in the world. Like that kind of really on on the on the edge of like know, on the edge of danger almost. Yeah, I, like it's like an addictive. It's an addictive feeling, you know. If you're on a roller coaster in a car, in a on a, on a bike, it's if you're doing it yourself, it's one thing, but then. Having it done by someone else, where you're out of control, I, I'll buzz off it. Like, like <laughs> it's, it's the highest, it's the highest. Like you can get off any drug, that's sure. Jamie, I read an interview with you where you said that speed to you was almost like meditation. That when you're at top speed, you're almost going into this meditative state. Is that how it feels? Um, I think Mark's made a really good point there, but I would say I feel the opposite about it. In the sense, <laughs> when you're in control of it, I definitely feel like that. <laughs> when I'm not in control of it, it's a very different feeling. I think I went in the passenger seat of a rally car uh, last week and 
Christ, I've never been so scared in my life. Um, <laughs> I know if I was driving the car, I wouldn't necessarily feel the speed and my perception wouldn't, wouldn't be like that. So yeah, for sure, when I'm driving, the feeling of speed, when you first say you've had a bit of time out and you first go out the pit lane, it always feels quick. But then the second one you do, you kind of adjust really quickly. Your body adapts to whatever you're driving. And, you know, I'm not driven in Formula One yet, but I think it's that same sort of feeling is it's so quick until your body adapts. And once your body adapts, I think you kind of get into this state of there's so much other stuff to think about and be worrying about. But yeah, it get, almost becomes, yeah meditative I guess is uh I can't actually remember using that word but uh. do you think then like Mark said that almost when when you're doing it when it's your speed it's so much a part of the job you're not necessarily registering the speed as such yeah for sure um yeah I mean on a lap like you end up just thinking about you know how to do the lap as quick as possible and the speed itself isn't the factor that you're thinking about you know you're trying to process all sorts of other information it's not uh you know, the first thing that's on your mind, you're not conscious of that. So it's, yeah, I guess something that becomes quite uh, yeah natural, I guess, um, you know, as, as you're driving. Valtteri, if you Google the top speed of a Formula One car, it says that they go at 360 kilometres an hour. You've taken it to 378 kilometres an hour. Maybe you've bettered that since. What on earth does that feel like? It's always so, so hard to describe. Yeah. <clears throat> if you think about fast, then double that. <laughs> Obviously, like uh, also what Jamie said, that when you're when, when you're kind of focused on what you're doing, you don't really actually think about the speed, but for sure you have uh, a sense of it. But uh, it's, it's a beautiful feeling um, for me. Yeah, it's uh, it's really addictive, and it's actually speed was the thing for me as a kid that really triggered the, the passion for racing uh, because when I first got to try a go-kart when I was five when I tried it and I obviously never as a kid so far had felt that kind of sensation of speed uh, immediately kind of got, got hooked to that and uh, then obviously throughout the cap career you get to faster karts uh, eventually to junior formulas and everything and it was so addictive and you're all, always just step by step, step getting, getting more speed and uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to feel. So like Mark, then you find it addictive, do you? You kind of have to keep hunting it almost. Definitely. And it's with anything I do, you know, most of the hobbies I do, you know, I do a bit of rallying. I love cycling as well and uh, driving any kind of things. I'm always searching for, for the speed. Cal, what about you then? Mark said that you love it. You love the speed. You're doing, what is it, 340, 350 kilometers an hour on a bike? I think the other three are just adrenaline junkies. <laughs> and what, you're not? No, because at the speed, uh, the, the thing is in MotoGP, every year they seem to get faster and faster. The bikes get faster and faster, which in a sense is great because everybody wants to go down the straight as, as fast as humanly possible because it's the easiest time made up as such. But I will agree exactly with what Jamie said. When you go, when you have a long time off, we have three months off in the winter as such. I didn't ride from, I didn't ride from the last race until I went to Qatar, which was uh, two and a half months. The first lap you go out, you feel like you're on a roller coaster. You know that shock when you go on a roller coaster yeah. when it, the G-forces hit you. But two laps later, you feel nothing. You feel like it's absolutely normal. It's about the brain getting up to speed. So with the brain getting up to speed in the first three, four, five laps of, of, uh, of your run, 
Um, it's the acceleration that really gets you. When you're doing 350k an hour down the straight, it seems that you see nothing different to what you do from zero to 150 kilometers an hour. Because the straight, you're essentially going in a straight line. There's only one place that I really think that actually Mark's been around um, that is not dangerous, you know, because, you know, riding around a on, a, on a motorbike as fast as humanly possible is dangerous. But the one thing that you get a little bit of a sense of reality of the speed you're going was, is it the end of Magello straight on a motorbike? Now, I know Val Valtteri will have done it last year with, uh, with the Formula One. And you come over a crest, but it's also a blind crest that is like a little bit kinked left. And we were doing just under 360k an hour there two years ago. But when there's four bikes side by side there, it, then you have a real sense of reality. On um, the front wheel as well. Yeah, because you go from the on the on the back wheel, wheeling over it, and then you brake that hard that you are literally on the front wheel at over 330, 40k an hour. My thrill it doesn't seem to be the speed. You know, I don't mind going at speed. I don't particularly get scared of it. But there has to be a, a thing where you definitely enjoy it, at, at, you know, at, at some some level because you wouldn't do it else. If you were scared, you, you definitely wouldn't do it. But is that not true for all of you? Is there not is there not something in, and it's really difficult question to answer even because you've no idea how anyone else is wired. You know, you don't know how anyone else's head works. But is there not an element with all of you that is, that is quite comfortable with pushing yourself into the danger zone because most people will stay within their safety zone. You can't, you can't do that and win. When you're in control of something, you're in control of the bike or the car that, that you're guiding at the time, you know? I think what you're not in control of is, if, is the other people around you. And that's something you have to preempt and be, that's the one thing that scares you is, is having to put your trust in the other other competitors in whatever sport it is. You can only do what you can do, I guess. And uh, that that's where that kind of comes into is, is we're not just on our own going fast. It's everyone else going fast around us. But it's that acceptance of danger, I think, that I'm, that I'm trying to get at as well, because that's what puts most people off, as well as, of course, the incredible amount of hard work it takes and how talented you need to be and the lifestyle that comes with it. But that putting yourself in a danger zone, whether it's your own danger zone or because of those around you, Jamie, is that something that you've found? I mean, you started carding at, what, 11, 12? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think it does boil down to what age you get into it, maybe, or what your perception is from a young age. Um, you know, I was really lucky when I was younger. Um, you know, my parents took us skiing when we were really young. Um, you know, you know, Mark was touching on earlier. I grew up in the Isle of Man, so... My parents were quite sort of casual with their approach just to what my brother and I got up to. Um, and so, yeah, our perception for speed and everything that we did was always just, you know, quite different to maybe a lot of other people. And I think that's just stayed with me. But for sure, if I got into motorsport or anything like that at this age, I probably would have my wits about me a little bit more. But yeah, I think Mark's completely right. It's other people that, you know, it makes a difference. And I think in I guess uh, our sport you quite often race against similar people you know you can trust or or not but I still find it mind-blowing you know cyclists how close they cycle to each other and in the peloton I think okay even if which I can't uh, could physically get to the level um, to be able to race on a bike I don't think I could be able to race in the peloton like they do and I think that's just something that they're so conditioned to have been able to do from you know such a young age or it's what they sort of um, you know learn from from yeah like I said a young age I think it just becomes becomes natural 
So maybe, yeah, it's what you're used to. Maybe you all find each other's sports actually really dangerous. And, and because you because it's what you know, you find safety within your own sport because it's what you've excelled at. It's what you've thrived at. Do you find right, racing a push bike, Jamie, more dangerous than what you do? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, 100%. And your perception of speed's different as well. Um, you know, I find uh, speed, obviously, in a racing car, I'm quite happy with. But on a bike, you know, I apparently I do descend quite quick. I don't actually think I do. <laughs> I haven't found the limit just yet. But um, yeah, honestly, I watch, um, you know, the pros in the peloton. They're sort of bowling shoulders. They're pushing each other. And yeah, the thought of doing that, um, to me, is mind-blowing. So I think it's just, yeah, what you become used to, I'm sure. I don't get why all, all three of you, you get to do something like with an engine and you want to ride bicycles. I don't get it. I just don't get it. Like, I'd do anything, anything to just be able to have an engine at some time. You know? <laughs> do something with an engine and you just want to ride yeah, bicycles. Like, Mark. Oh. <laughs> what is it about cycling that you all love then? Yeah. Because that's a common thread, obviously. That's why we're chatting. Valtteri, what is it about cycling? Because given the speeds that you go in a Formula One car with the best will in the world, however good you are on a bike, you're not going to get that fast. You know, obviously, the, all the training we do and physical training, I always can't have an engine underneath me <laughs> to get, get fit enough. So uh, there's, of course, different ways of, of training your end endurance. And I've always loved running. You know, I've always found that's an easy and nice way to get better in terms of your aerobic fitness. Um, but then cycling, you know, it's, uh, it's different and it's just another way of really actually enjoying the scenery um, at the same time and seeing lots of places that you would normally see. And versus if you drive a car on a nice road somewhere, you're basically just looking at the road if you're going fast. But then with a bike, you, I feel like you have much more time to actually, you know, see the place actually, how, how it is. And uh, and I find it good fun, uh, especially downhills. I enjoy a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and now, yeah, obviously now my girlfriend is, um, is uh, Tiffany Cromwell. So she's a cyclist. So obviously there's more extra interest now. And it's another sport that once you get better in it and, you know, when, the climbs are starting to feel easier and you can go further and faster. It's also quite addictive. And uh, I love training anyway, so I don't mind a bit of pain. So I think there's enough valid reasons why I like cycling. Do you ever try to raise Tiff? On sprint, she's got no chance. So, uh, <laughs> I always go for all, the, all her sprint sessions. <laughs> when it's climbing, they are home. So. <laughs> so what's your top speed, Valtteri, on a bike? How fast have you gone? Fastest I've gone on a bike is maybe 90k or something. So, yeah, still want to crack the 100 one day. Mark, what's the fastest you've ever gone, either in a race or a training? I have to tell you exactly. It was the stage of the Tour of Swiss in 2009. And I think we were on the other side of the, the Gotthard Pass. I was like 124 kilometers an hour. But we were all in the bunch. And that day, Fabian Cancellara came past the side of the bunch. He was doing like way over 130. He would have been, I think, about 134 maybe. But he was a lot fascinated. But all of us got in, in 120, a big peloton together. When you looked down and saw that speed, was there was there a flash of of even the edge of fear somewhere where you thought... And there wasn't actually. It's strange. Like, it was just a big straight road. It's actually, you'd get a bigger sense of speed 
if there's some turns or or it's a bit more technical, they're, they're the ones that are a lot more enjoyable. It's not actually the speed on a descent that I think you get the buzz from. It's the change in the speed and the, the acceleration, the decelerations, the movement of the bicycle. The same as on a motorbike or in a car, you know, it's that movement forward, back, side to side. It's that it's that, that that gives you that kind of buzz, I guess, rather than the actual speed well from my perspective jamie you've been told you're quite handy going downhill what's your top speed my strava says i've done 95 but i don't believe it because i've tried to go as quick as that before and i've not got anywhere near it so (laughs) i don't i don't believe it. i think that might be a glitch on strava but it's it's reasonable like you know like there were if you you go to mountain like if you you go to switzerland or something you'd easily pass 100 and same with you jamie like kyle you've been over 100 i know that what's your top kyle i don't know i think it was around 120 as well but i would tell you this i'd rather do 120 with a set of leathers on than a set of lycra (laughs) i can tell you that Um, i agree it doesn't scare me but you think and i have crashed the bicycle before so you get completely skinned as you know but i can crash it 300 i crashed in australia in uh in phillip island at the end of 2018 at, at over 200 mile an hour and uh yeah i broke my ankle i didn't have one one cut on me zero but you can imagine crashing at 100k an hour on a bicycle you know you'd be skinned from head to toe so you don't really think about it at the time when you're doing 100k an hour on a descent or anything like that one of the reasons why i love cycling so much is it's the complete opposite to what I do. You know, you ride around at 30, 35K an hour training and stuff like that. It's it's a lot slower speed, you know. Hence the reason I don't have fast cars as such or motorcycles that I ride on the road because I get that when I'm when I'm racing or now testing, you still get to, to ride at speed. So I have no massive passion for going to get a fast car or, or a motorcycle that you can go really fast on, on the road on. So cycling to me is like the absolute opposite of what I do. You know, you can still ride on two wheels and, and go slowly doing it. I also really like it from a social point of view. I think I, we're quite lucky in our sport that we can pick kind of what training we do. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be running. It doesn't have to be that specific um, around sort of the cardio-based stuff. So, yeah, going out on a long ride for me is a much better solution than going out for a long run although I still run as well yeah like Valtteri said being able to actually spend time and he's fortunate obviously he lives in Monaco where there's a lot nicer roads than here in the UK but still being able to yeah go spend a few hours out on the bike I think um is part of it and also I think you just get obsessed with it I think I don't know if that's a racing driver thing but there is a lot of racing or are a lot of racing drivers that like cycling and I think it's because you get obsessed with what bike you've got what kit you've got everything and then it becomes this sort of yeah, whole new uh, new sport that you just become, yeah, fully involved in. Yeah, one, one more thing I forgot to mention also why cycling, um, especially with, because I love mountain biking as well, but for the training, like, let's say, if you, example, train your cardio with running on a treadmill versus if you're training on your bike on, um, you know, tricky roads or on a mountain bike in the forest, single trails, I feel like also for the mind is, is super good and actually for your focus, even though at the same time, it's another sport you're doing and that way recharging your mentally, but it means you need to stay alert. You need to stay focused uh, if you don't want to crash. So I feel like it's actually good to you know keep your brain active because there's so many other workouts that 
we don't need to think anything and just do it but um, i think it's good for the brain and obviously concentration and focus in everyone's sport that is involved here is super important guys thank you so much for joining in the chat it's been really good i find it really good fun anyway i hope you've enjoyed it um it's been really it's insightful to get your opinions on something that seems well it is it's so alien to most of us so thank you all the Shenwei talking to Valtteri Bottas, Cal Crutchlow, Jamie Chadwick and Mark Cavendish. And you can read the whole conversation and all his latest column in Ruler issue 103. If you're not yet a subscriber, head to ruler.cc and sign up now. Issue 103 also includes features on Italian time trial star Filippo Ganna, the quest for the 60km hour record and a photo essay on capturing speed. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer. Lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists, from the coffee and cake rider to the crit racer. Lacquer has transformed traditional insurance. No more fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your maximum monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. Plus, 80% of your money goes straight back into the Lacquer Collective, fixing, replacing and helping. And the other 20% keeps their wheels spinning. It's as simple as that. Claims are handled by their team of cycling experts and usually agreed within a day. With no depreciation or excess, they've ditched annual contracts with Lacquer. If you want to leave, you can, any time. If you head over to www.lacquer.co, new customers can get their first 30 days free by signing up today with the discount code RULER. I'm sure all of us have wanted at some point to just jack it all in and head off around the world. Frederica Eck went and did it. With very little cycling experience and just a desire to find out what was beyond the horizon, she set out, returning 1,042 days later, having circumnavigated the world on her trusty Surly. She's written a book, Around the World in a Thousand Days. Well, I come from Sweden, obviously. And I grew up in a town called Sundsvall, which is really, if you would ask anyone here, it would be the most typical ordinary town just somewhere in Sweden. And I grew up in just another house looking like any any other house uh, in this town looking like any other town. And I was, and still I am, uh, really this very ordinary typical girl uh, having had like the least extraordinary upbringing I think um, I really come from from a safe place with like I have my two parents I have my two brothers and we had our, our little backyard where we used to play football and like uh, cycling around the house was was what I did as a kid and and I really come from this very yeah, I can't. I don't have a better word for it than than I come from a safe place, and I think that in the end is is the biggest privilege that anyone any kid can ever have, and the result of it is that somewhere along the the line you you do get bored, and I think that was sort of like the launch pad from where my life took the the direction it 
it has. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, um, with that background, why did you decide to ride your bike around the world? Was it a sudden thing? or? Well, obviously, I don't have a good answer for you. I, I still don't know, like, but every experience I had combined uh, coincidences and not uh, obviously led me to to one evening I still remember like the the specific evening where I made the decision that heck I still didn't own a bicycle at this point but I I really decided for myself that I'm gonna ride my bike that I still don't own I'm gonna get it somehow but I'm gonna ride it around the world and I mean, obviously, there are like so many parts that play into it and so many wishes and dreams. Uh, but I think in the end, for me, it's it always comes down to curiosity in one way or another, obviously, for the world around me. And like what was outside the, the safe, boring bubble that I that I was brought up in. Um, but also, I think about like curiosity towards seeing where my own limits actually are because the more you do you sort of realize well it's not here because this this thing that maybe other people told me or my, including myself like you, you we tell ourselves a lot of things about what we can't do and then you get to prove yourself wrong a few times and then for me it's just spiraling uh, out of control maybe but um, curiosity would be the word I think. Did you have any idea when you sort of put your foot on the pedal for the first time on that journey did you have any idea of how big a task it was? No (laughs) definitely not and I think uh, had I known had I had like the slightest clue of any anything like there are so many parts of it but had I known like just from from one single aspect of what it would actually what was actually ahead of me i know for a fact that i would wouldn't have started so like i'm obviously very very thankful that i didn't know now in um the book you tell the stories of going to obviously you know uh, countless number of countries, but including places like sort of Iran, Turkmenistan, along the border with Afghanistan, places where ordinarily we think it would be a very dangerous um, and unpleasant place to be. But most of your experiences, in fact, nearly all your experiences, are very positive, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I think, like, in those some of those places that you mentioned now, all those positive overwhelmingly human experiences and and meetings with with other people uh, they become really even stronger than they would I think just because I mean I grew up watching the same news reading the same papers as everyone else I have been brought up to have the same truths about um, these places or the people living here as anyone else. So obviously I'm, I was li- literally scared to death sometimes. Crossing the border into Iran was one very, very clear example to that for myself. And then you're never really confronted, I think, with the, with the prejudice we all carry until you actually ride your bicycle as a solo girl inside like, a country as Iran, for example. Yeah, I was riding 45 countries on this trip and still 
Iran is the, without competition, the top one friendliest place uh, that I've that I've ever experienced in my life. Let's talk a little bit about your bike because you did eventually get a bike. You got a Surly, uh, which you called Mister Bike. Um, any was there anything special about it? Was it sort of specially built for the journey or anything, or was it just a average bike? I mean, I did my best sitting in my like childhood room back in Sundsvall, Sweden, trying to roam Google, finding out how the heck am I supposed to know which bike or to get to ride it around the world. Um, I knew nothing about bicycles. I'd used it. I mean, for me, it's, it's always been a tool to go to my football practice or to school or to work. It's, it's a vehicle, right? And not one that I'd ever given too much thought and so I, I tried to just take the the good advice that people generally really try to <laughs> uh, give you online and trying to know figure out sort of who to listen to and who not and like in hindsight I did ride on one of the I think in my opinion the best the best touring rig that anyone could ever wish for uh, going on such a long haul uh, journey that I did. It's all steel. I mean, you can, I could break it in any, <laughs> any way, shape or form. And there will always be a way for me to, to fix any, any problem that I had with it, regardless if I'm in, in a developed country in Europe or on the uh, outback Uzbekistan, let's say. However, it did take me till Singapore like a year into my trip before actually realizing that the frame size is way off for me. It's quite funny and it speaks a bit, I think, of who I was and what this journey was really about for me. I mean, now, years later, I've come home and now, yeah, of course, I have these really nice bicycles. I go to these really fancy bike fits and it's super nice. But I mean, how many people are we sitting back home with bikes in the perfect frame size and still we don't ride to Singapore? So I think it's it's sort of, yeah, I, I feel stupid, but it's also, I think, quite a reminder for myself and maybe for some other people too, that it's not always about the gear. When you got back home to Sweden, um, how easy was it to kind of readjust to a life where you weren't traveling around the world? Truthfully, that was a lot more difficult for me than actually riding around the world. Um, I had spent, say, a good year and a half uh, preparing for, for the start of the trip. I mean, still, I had no idea what I was get, getting myself into, and in no way was I really prepared for what was ahead. But I had spent every waking and sleeping hour for, for a long time, just preparing mentally and practically to, to start. And fast forward three years, and suddenly I was just home. I thought, I think, that the, the ride back home through Europe would sort of be like a fade out for me and sort of be my time to, to readjust just a little bit as I was I mean, the world around me was getting more and more similar to, to my home uh, for each passing day. But then, in reality, the, 
the, I think physically the most demanding part of the, the whole journey was my last week and a half coming back through Sweden. It was really, really a cold winter year. And I spent the last good week in minus 20 to 25 degrees Celsius. And yeah, the, the amount of snow I think was a meter and 70 centimeters in my hometown when I when I got home, which which sort of says, speaks a lot, I think, for anyone who's ever experienced cold temperatures or trying to ride your bike in it or pitch your tent in it, cook your water in it. I was really focusing on survival, basically, and pushing each pedal stroke, each kilometer all the way back home to my parents' house. And so I was not prepared for for the actual landing uh, at all. And then suddenly I just realized, well, I'm here now. Long story short, it was really, I think I had, I had another year, several year long journey ahead of me, actually being able to fully uh, feel at home again after, after coming there. And now I do, and I'm very, very grateful for that. So what next? Because it's in some ways a more challenging world at the moment than it was when when you left. Do you have any plans? I think one thing I learned from my years on the road is to seldom make plans, but I really enjoy having ideas. The same thing, really, but for me, it's just I, I have a better feel uh, towards having ideas because they can be anything and no one can tell you that they're not good. And so I, I'm really just like any, like everyone, we're just waiting to see what happens now, right? Um, at the moment, some borders are opening, they're closing, and really we can make all the plans we want. But the last year, I think, has really taught every, all of us that they're not much worth, right? So I have ideas and hopes for this summer that to really ride my bike a lot. And Mr. Bike is currently tucked away in a garage somewhere. I go a little bit lighter, a little bit faster, and more sort of a bike packing setup. And I have worst case scenario, I have a million gems I want to see within Sweden this summer. And if possible, I want to sort of extend that circle with the the Nordic countries, the, the Baltic countries, and still sort of keeping myself kind of close to home. Because there's really, for me, yeah, I've been, I've been far away on my bike, but I've, there's really a lot of things nearby that I still want to see. Okay, Frederica, whatever you uh, decide to do, good luck with it. Um, Around the World in a Thousand Days by Frederica Eck is available on ruler.cc. Thank you, Frederica. Thanks so much for having me. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code
code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.